Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm Lena Abujamra, and I'm your host. I'm so glad you're here. If you've been following this podcast for some time, then you might have picked up on the fact that we're doing a series called Dear Lena, where I pretty much answer your questions about life and faith and culture and everything in between. I give you biblical truth for everyday life, and that has been so fun, and we're going to continue that, but we're doing a little bit of a break today. I uh, have a special treat. I'm going to be doing a few interviews here and there, and this is really one that I think uh, I think you're going to love. And our goal has always been to tell stories of hope. And when I, um, well, honestly, I had already been familiar with the guest that I have today. I read, I think, everything that she's ever written for Desiring God, and I thought she did for the Gospel Coalition. But I can, I've gotten to the place where I can just read an article and tell that she's the author. And then I look back and go, oh yeah, it's Vanitha Risner. And uh, she is somebody who writes about suffering. In fact, I'll tell you a little bit about her. She's passionate about helping people meet God in the midst of their suffering. Uh, uh, Her own journey includes suffering, and we're gonna go through that in a minute, but she had polio as a child, lost an infant son and unexpectedly had a diagnosis of post-polio syndrome, went through an unwanted divorce. She just really has felt the pain of this life. And no wonder she has a book coming out in January called Walking Through Fire, A Memoir of Loss and Redemption. It's gonna be coming out by Thomas Nelson. I know you guys are gonna wanna hear more about the book and more about her. If you've never heard of her before, I promise you you're gonna wanna hang up this podcast and go and find everything she's ever written about suffering. Um, Today, she lives in North Carolina. She's got uh, uh, two daughters, I believe, Leave Katie and Christy and is now married actually and I heard a little bit of that that we'll probably get into at some point she met her now husband on eHarmony so those of you who are single listen up this is going to be a fun and uh, hopefully helpful and hopeful conversation so Vanitha thank you for coming on the show today oh I am so excited to be here Lena thank you so much for having me so, all right, I, I, I really, uh, I, I really meant it. Like I have read your articles, and in fact, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna just sort of fangirl for a minute, or I don't know if, if that's the right word, but I remember once, a few months back, I was going through. You know, we all go through darkness and valleys, and I read an article that you written. It was probably like the fourth or fifth article that you'd written that I'd read, and. I was so moved. Like it was like that Luke 24 to burning in my heart. And I was like, I'm going to write her. And I just remember, I think, I think I sent it. I can't remember. Don't go looking in your archives, but I just poured my heart out and it was so therapeutic to just go through that. And you never answered me, but be that as it may, it's fun to have you here. You've ministered to me so much. I don't know if you, if, if you were aware of that, or I'm sure people tell you that a lot, but I'd love to hear more about you sort of, um, uh, I guess we could use your suffering points that are, are part of your bio as the skeleton of, you know, take us back, you know, where did you grow up? Tell us a bit about this polio uh, and the illness that you went through even as a child. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I was born in India. My parents are believers and we were, I was born in the South of India in Madras, which is called Chennai now. And everything was fine. But when I was three months old, my parents took me to the beach And all of a sudden they took me to the doctor. I had a high fever of 105 degrees, which Mm -hmm. for a three month old is, is really dangerous. So the, um, the doctor that they saw who was actually uh, a neighbor thought that I had typhoid and she said, Oh my gosh, she needs, um, cortisone. So they, she wrote me a prescription for cortisone, which lowers your body's immune system, as you know. And so within uh, 24 hours, they felt like I was paralyzed, but they didn't really know what had happened. And then it was days later that they took me into the hospital and the doctor said, oh, she has polio. She had polio and she is completely paralyzed. Oh my goodness. And so my parents had no idea what to do at this point. And in India, there was nothing the doctors could do. And they basically said, you need to leave the country if you want any kind of medical care. So my dad was a professor at a university in India and left to go to England and took the first job he could find, which was a manual laborer's job, just so I could get medical care. Wow. So I had my first surgery in England and then we moved to Canada because my dad got um, actually an engineering job, which is what his degree was in in Canada. So that's when I started really this journey of, of surgeries. I had surgery in England, but I lived in the hospital for years when I was in Canada. 
So you remember all that. This was through your childhood years. It wasn't just as a baby. Yes, I definitely remember it. So my earliest memories are of the hospital. And I was in a body cast um, for nine months straight. So I was flat on my back in the hospital. And I only got to see my parents on weekends. So I really wow. just lived alone, basically. That's crazy. I don't, my mind, our minds can't comprehend it now in this day and age, but I mean, your parents weren't allowed to be there or they just had to work or? No, they were not allowed because it was a free hospital. And the way it worked is a lot of parents abandoned their kids and left them there. So they didn't want people whose parents weren't coming to feel bad. So my parents could come just, they were certain hours that were visiting hours and that was all. And so they had to they came every single visiting hour, I think there there was, but there were not a lot. Nobody was allowed on the weekdays. And so, so what did, I, do you recall thinking about God even during that time? Were you too young for that? I mean, what is the span of age now? Up to 10, 12? Yes, up to uh, probably up to nine is when I lived in the hospital. And I was so angry at God, Lena. I, my parents brought me up in church and I would go to church the whole time, but I thought God is not for me. He can't be for me. I live in this different world. And I remember when I was in the ward, there were like 12 girls on my ward. It's just this open floor and there was one TV and I would look at life watching TV and thinking, this is a life that other people have that I'm never going to have. And just really felt like I didn't want anything to do with God if that's what God was going to you know, that's all that God could do for me. When did you first walk? Like when was your first memory of being like, I'm not paralyzed, I can walk? Um, I started having surgeries when I was young and I took my first steps when I was seven. Wow. So I remember that. I remember learning how to walk, which was kind of wild. And then, but I'd had 21 operations by the time I was 13. What? That's crazy. Yeah. And so- so now, like at the end, the la- was that the last operation, or have you had continued issues? Like, what happened? You know, was it like one day they were like, "Okay, you're good now"? No, 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 continued um, issues. And my legs are actually stronger than my arms, even though I have a pronounced limp. And all my surgeries, except for one when I was young, were all on my legs to get me to walk. But my arms are really weak. I have no shoulder muscle, and so they're always trying to figure out if they can do something. To, they did muscle transfers is what all the surgeries were for the most part. And my hip was dislocated. So I had multiple surgeries for that. So I, after I was seven, I probably still had, I don't know, 10 or 12 more operations. So it's crazy. And so, so, but you're like, so you, you kind of do school at some point in the process of this. And like, when did this transition to faith happen for you? Was it later in life or did it take place somewhere in your, in your teenage years? It was my teenage years. So I didn't want anything to do with God. But when I got to high school, I went to FCA, which is Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And the only reason that I went was because all the popular people in my high school were um, in FCA and I wanted to meet the cute boys in FCA. So I went with a friend of mine and we weren't Christians. We would sit in the back and talk about the football players. Hmm. And then she went away on a retreat and she came back and she said to me, God is real. And I remember thinking, you are going to want to talk about God now. I was so upset. But uh, I remember one night I went home and I prayed and I just said, God, if you're real, show me. And then the next morning, you know, nothing really happened that night. And the next morning I got up and I thought, you know what? I should just look at the Bible because that's what I'm, uh, I should ask if God is really real. So I opened the Bible and just started flipping through. And I remember I flipped into um, Leviticus and all kinds of books in the Old Testament thinking, you know, this is exactly what I thought about. And then I asked God this question. I said, why did this happen? If you are real and you care about me, why was I disabled? Mm. And I had been through a lot of bullying as well when I was young, Whenever I, when I wasn't in the hospital. So I had a lot of anger from those things as well. And so I flip open to John 9 and the disciples are going by and they see a man who is blind from birth and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
And Jesus says, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life. And I remember thinking, God is answering the exact question I'm asking. Like, why did this happen? And it was interesting because I wanted a reason, like, what had I done? And that was what the disciples had asked. But Jesus answers answers not with what have you done to deserve this, but why does it ha- why did it happen because there is a purpose? And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times we ask that question even now, like, why did this happen to me? Because we want to know what we did wrong or what right. we can do again to change it. And God is saying, ask, what is the purpose of this? Because I'm doing something in it. And that really sort of reframed my view of my suffering I didn't know I'd need that reframing lots of other times in my life, but that was this moment where I read it and I knew that God was talking to me. And I knelt down by the side of my bed and committed my life to Christ. Didn't really know who he was, but knew that he knew me. So even though like you had at that point where where you're still in a sense going to church, doing the church thing because of your parents, or had you been come from a place where you were like, I'm opposed to that, I'm not into it to now, you were like, Mom, Dad, guess what? I just changed. Well, it's funny you say that. So I was a pleaser. I've been a pleaser for way too many years. So I did not tell them about my anger or my feelings about church. I just went and pretended to be the good girl. So then I felt weird when I had committed my life to Christ because I thought they're going to think, why, why are you telling us this? We thought you were a Christian. So I didn't tell them anything, but then my mom and my sister both said to me that they knew that I had changed radically, which was pretty amazing. Like they both had talked about it and said, something is so different about her. So it's funny, you don't have to, I mean, it's great to talk about it, but God changes us when we really commit ourselves to him. And, and just so I have a mental picture. So were, do you walk with a limp? Like, so all these, like you're at the Fellowship Christian Athletes, looking at the cute football player, was it evident to others that you had a handicap or oh, was yes. it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Strong limp, uh, couldn't keep up with people. I can't walk fast. Nobody can see how weak my arms are, but yeah, everybody knew I was disabled. Did you then go to a Christian college or where did, what happened in the college? So move us to like your marriage because that's the next big sort of suffering that happens, right? You get married and you have a son. So talk, kind of speed us up to that. What yeah. happened? In so your- I went to um, college at University of Virginia and tried to maneuver all around the campus or grounds actually is what they call it. And I mm-hmm. did fine there. It pushed me physically, which was good. And then I lived in Boston for four years after college and where then I went study? to grad school out in California, which is where I met my husband, Dave, who was a classmate at business school. And we were married for a few years and I had a miscarriage. And then I got pregnant with our daughter, Katie. Then I had two more miscarriages. And then I got pregnant with our son, Paul, who was born with a hypoplastic left heart. And we knew that he had a heart problem before he was born. We found out in in utero and decided to do this three-step procedure called the Norwood procedure for um, him. So he had it at birth at the University of Michigan Hospital. He was doing super well from the surgery. The doctor said he was doing great. We came home within two weeks and he was thriving. We took him in to his see his regular cardiologist who was on vacation. So we saw a substitute. And that doctor was not familiar with Paul's condition. And so he ended up impulsively taking him off all his medicine because Paul was doing so well. He was, you know, on the probably 75th percentile and height and weight. And he said, he doesn't need all this medicine. He's doing fine. But he didn't realize that he needed that medicine to, for his life. And a friend of mine actually is a pediatric cardiologist. And after this guy took him off all the medicine, I happened to be on the phone with my friend. And he said, that's crazy. He needs that medicine. You need to get him back on it. But it was really too late for us. And so- How old was your son at that point? He was uh, almost two months, not quite two months. Wow. So uh, it's interesting, actually, because we took him to the ER, but he he actually died that night. 
which was so hard. And I just remember thinking, God, what are you doing in this? But I don't know if you're aware, familiar with that Natalie Grant song, Held, which um, a friend of mine wrote about our son, Paul. And it does start off with his story, two months is too little, but they let him go. That was no that's about, about him. That's crazy. I didn't know that. that's. Yeah, we're all familiar with that song. People love that song. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So the words of the first um, stanza are just the words of our story. You know, they they had to let him go. There was no sudden healing. To think that providence would take a child from his mother while she prays is appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it says, "Who told us we'd be rescued?" And it goes on to say the whole song, which I will not sing or say anymore, right. but it's, it's just right. an amazing story of how God holds us in our pain. And that's really what I've discovered is the most amazing gift God gives us in our suffering is he does hold us and he is with us in our pain. Well, uh, and I want to get to that in a second, but I, I sorry, I, I'm a detailed person. I, I want to sort of plug in a couple of, 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 of other things. So when you married your husband, David, was he a believer? Like, were you both like walking in the faith, committed? Yes. yes. Were you dedicated? Were you in particular jobs, or were you living in ministry? Or tell me a bit about sort of the context of that. Yeah. So we met at um, Stanford Business School. So we were both in um, like really into our careers in business. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> so we met. We got married between the first and second year of school. Now, Dave, when I first met him was not a believer, but then, and we were just friends. And then I shared the gospel with him and he became a believer. And so he started going to church with me and we started dating and he was really a pretty strong Christian from, I mean, he still is actually a believer. So he was a strong Christian, but we never really thought about going into ministry. We both, because Stanford is so about business, that was kind of what we did. So. And you both worked during your, or were you, was your plan to like be at home or sort of, you had a daughter now and the son with the medical care, I'm assuming, like, were you still maintaining a career at that point or uh, what were you up to uh, outside of the, the, the suffering that you were going through? Yeah, no, I had quit my job when I had Katie. So it was a decision we went back and forth on because before that I had actually been working uh, and my husband, Dave, had been starting, he had started a business, but it hadn't really made a lot of money. But when I decided to stay home with Katie, he took a consulting job. So we so when you started walking, well, even, I mean, again, not to, I know you went through a horrific tragedy with your son, but you still are also had had three miscarriages. I mean, every one of those is a loss. And so you were both, I mean, did you feel like at the time, I mean, it's, now it's in hindsight, like sometimes you can look back and talk about God meeting you, but but what was it like then as you walked through one after the next and then to walk them through the suffering with your son? And I mean, were you, did you ever get angry at God or bitter or resentful or wondering, like you've already gone through 20 some surgeries, you know, your, your life, you thought you were done, you know, you gave your life to Christ and now you're walking through this. Like, how did you to walk us through sort of the darkness for a minute? Yeah, it was dark. So it was funny, Lena, because right, right after Paul died, we spoke at his funeral, and I remember saying, God doesn't make a mistake, and really believing that God was carrying me. I felt like my faith was carrying me. And then probably three weeks later, I wanted to pull it all back. I thought, why mm-hmm. did I say that? Because people then, they hear the last thing that you say, and they think, wow, this person is trusting God. And I really was struggling, and I pulled away from God just thinking, I begged you to save my son's life and you didn't. So I don't know if I can trust you. Mm. And so I pulled far away and I remember being in the car and just saying, God, I can't do this all of a sudden because I was so angry at God. I had pulled so far away. I wasn't reading the Bible. So I called out to God and put in a worship. uh, It was a cassette tape then. So I put Mm. in the worship cassette and all of a sudden I was praying and asking God just to help me. And the presence of God filled my car in a way that I have never had before, never since. And I remember thinking, this is what it means to serve God. Like there was just this joy that was so different than anything I'd ever experienced. And it, to me, is still one of those moments that I look back on to say, wow, God does meet us in our pain in these crazy ways. But I had 
I had pulled away and it was really God bringing me back. And one of the things even after that, that God taught me is it's okay to talk to God about what's hard. Because I think before that I had always thought, kind of like your mom says, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So if I didn't have anything good to say to God, if I was frustrated and angry, I felt like I needed to keep that to myself. And I felt like God showed me after that day when he was right there that I just needed to keep talking to him. So Mm. that became part of my language and my life was lament and just laying it all, all out there with God. Like, I need you. I'm mad. Why are you not here? Please help me. And just seeing how the Psalms so beautifully show us that is the way we communicate with God. And that started to really change my walk with God. Did your husband feel the same? Like, were you guys walking through this together or some people isolate each from each other in a marriage during difficulties? Did, did the trial bring you closer at the time or, or further apart? I would say at the time it brought us closer, although I was more verbal about how I felt, I think, in being angry at God and distant and upset. And I think he was a little more, de- not detached, but we grieved differently. And at times I think I felt like, oh, he doesn't care as much as I do, which isn't the case, but I realized people definitely grieve in different ways. And how long was the next child? You have uh, a second daughter, correct? Yes. had a second daughter, Christy. And then I had another miscarriage, which was really hard. And then the doctor said, I really shouldn't have any more kids. And we had wanted a big family. So that was hard. But then Mm -hmm. Uh, about five, six years after Paul died, I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, which I didn't know anything about really. I'd heard of it, but I didn't know exactly what it meant, but I got this really debilitating pain in my arm and went to lots of doctors and they couldn't figure it out. Nobody knew what it was. And it was so bad. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't feed myself. So I ended up going to a clinic, a polio clinic in Boston, not really knowing how it would even be related. And it was then that they diagnosed me with post-polio syndrome, which means that basically I needed to stop everything I was doing because I was wearing my body out. And what they said is basically when you get polio, your motor neurons die And what happens is your body sprouts up these secondary motor neurons, or this is how they explained it to me. And these secondary motor neurons have a limited life, whereas primary motor neurons have an unlimited life, which is why I was able to walk after I was a quadriplegic. Even with the surgeries, if I was a complete quadriplegic, I would never be able to walk. So it was these secondary motor neurons that sort of fueled me to be able to do all of these things. But with their limited life and with my overusing them, they were starting to die off. And they said it's like money in a bank. These secondary motor neurons come with a certain amount of money in the bank. And everything you do, you're making a withdrawal. So they said I needed to For you in everyday life, you couldn't carry your daughter anymore? Yeah, I could never carry my kids. So I had a nanny because I've never had any shoulder muscle. But the part of my arms that did work, I used to love to cook. I scrapbooked. I loved art. So even though I couldn't pick up things, I could draw and paint. And I did that a lot. And so it meant immediately giving that up. And it meant getting a wheelchair, which I use pretty frequently now, but I had never used one before. But they said, if I didn't get a wheelchair, then I would not be able to walk at all when I needed to. So it was this. So now you have an option. You can walk, but you you usually just save the muscles, so to speak. Yes. So in my house, because it's it's not that hard, I don't use the wheelchair. But if I'm going somewhere, especially somewhere I'm not familiar with, I will use the wheelchair. And you can use a computer and write. I mean, tell us about that because that's what you do now. You write. Yeah, I have to use voice activated software, so I can't type and. That is the part that's actually the hardest thing for me right now is my arms and shoulders are getting really bad. Like my shoulders, muscles, there's nothing there. So my arms are not falling out of the sockets, but they would if there were no ligaments there. So they're pulling on my neck and my shoulders. So I don't use my hands very much at all. Like I speak into everything, which is why I love doing podcasts and doing things like that. I can talk. 
because with writing, I have to speak it into the computer and edit it that way, which... And this has been how many years since you were diagnosed with the post-polio syndrome? Um, I was diagnosed in 2003, so 17 years, which is... uh, It's been a long time. And there have been times when it's been really hard and times when I've not been in a lot of pain because it comes with a fair amount of pain. Um, and But I've only had a lot of pain, I would say, in the last five years. And so in the middle of this, I mean, this is like, it's unreal what you're suffering through. And, and so you, you now you've got this to add to it and then you get another blow. Yes. So trying to figure out all this stuff. And then my husband, Dave, comes home and tells me he's leaving for someone else. And that really, it was probably the deepest cut because I felt completely alone then. Whereas with everything else, I relied on Dave and I thought we can make it through together. And then with that, I was completely alone. I had two adolescent daughters who were at the time 10 and 13, really angry, angry at God, angry we were involved in church, angry that this could possibly happen. Uh, None of us saw it coming at all. So it was really, really hard. And And even, I mean, and now you have, I mean, you can't basically, I mean, do much in terms of like physically. So how, I mean, what was your, was your, like, were you, like, how did your faith survive that? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you're just, I'm feeling gutted and I wasn't even walking it. Like, you just kind of go, now what? Like, what are you supposed to do? You just hire a nurse? I mean, what, what do you do? It was so hard, Lena. At first, I just remember, I remember screaming at God, like, why do you hate me? Like, I just didn't know what to do. There were days that I would get back from driving the girls and like collapse on the floor. My friends helped me a lot because I just couldn't do it. I mean, to single parent, two adolescents who can't drive. You drive like you could drive or do you have to use like... Um... Um, I have a special adapted steering um, basically because there's no tension on the wheel because I can't um, right, uh, right. turn the wheel myself. But it was um, exhausting, like to get up, get them ready, yes, take it to work. Exactly. It was just crazy to have to do all that. And so I was very grateful to my friends who helped me. Were you but in a really, really church community? It was, my community was amazing. Our church was so good about just being there with me, for me. Our pastor got a group of people together that just really helped me organize prayer meetings, did all kinds of amazing things for me. How did so, you find the church? Like a lot of people struggle, I think, in 2020. They want a community that will stand by them if something happens. And I'm single, and so I hear this a lot. Like it's hard to belong to a church. And was it just like over time you just delved in? I mean, how? what are some advice, you know, points that you might give somebody listening? To, like how do you get to the place where you have a church community that's there for you? I think at first you just show up to events at church. I just, when we first started going to the church, I just went to things and met people. And I did teach the women's Bible study, which was really hard because when my ex-husband first left, I didn't want people to know. So I taught Mm -hmm. for months because I kept thinking he was going to come back and didn't want this big, huge church problem. So I taught for a few months without anybody knowing, which was really hard. That's but, crazy. You yeah. just hit it? That's yeah. crazy. Now, my friends knew, but not the general people in the Bible study. But when everybody found out, um, he had church discipline with our church. So the whole church knew. And people rallied mm-hmm. around me, offered to help in multiple ways, which I was really grateful for. But I would say I really found community just by being involved. Like a lot of times, you know, when they say there's a women's coffee or a women's ministry thing, a lot of times... If you don't know people, you think, oh, I don't want to go. But I would encourage people just to go because that's how you get to meet people and people get to know you. Because I think it's a lot harder when you go through suffering and you don't know people because people may sign up to bring you a meal or do something. But if they didn't know you before suffering, it's a lot harder, I think, for the sufferer to really engage with people while they're suffering. Right. And what would the issue with with your you know, ex-husband, I mean, he's the one who, you know, obviously, you know, cheated and goes to find somebody else. But like, as a Christian, you're in the church, like how much did you feel like you carried some shame? I mean, you didn't mention it for a while. How did you work through that? How did you feel like you're free of like, I mean, you hadn't done anything wrong, but I think sometimes despite that, we carry some, 
guilt or shame. Maybe shame, guilt isn't the word I'm looking for. Maybe more of a shame. Like, shame. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I carried a lot of shame, especially because I had done marriage counseling with people, my husband and I, about you know how to have a good marriage because I thought we had a good marriage and we did for a lot of years. But that was really hard realizing, okay, we talked about how good our marriage was. And I'm sure people are thinking that one, I lied or two, I was completely delusional. <laughs> so that was hard. And a lot of ministries don't even let people who are divorced right. teach. And so there was this sense of huge sense of judgment. And I felt like people were probably wondering when they found out I was separated, like, what did you do? And I get that because I'm sure I'd done that to other people. So I'm not even blaming people for doing that, but it felt really painful. And I didn't know really how to handle it when people would ask about it because you don't want to trash talk your ex-husband. I really wanted to take the high road and yet people had questions and wanted to know what happened and was it we just didn't get along or... And so it was on multiple levels. There was shame. There was figuring out what to say. There was just a lot of complication. And I think that was the hardest thing for me, Lena, in terms of not having good resources, because there's people who write books about when their child dies. There's their great books. Nancy Guthrie has a great book. Yeah. And a lot of people write about how do you handle that? And physical pain, Johnny Erickson Tata is my hero. Yeah. She writes about that. But there are not a lot of Christian women that write about divorce and separation and how that feels and being a single parent. It's just not talked about in the church much. So I didn't know even what that looked like or what I should do. Well, and I would imagine, I mean, again, like, you know, how did you avoid, you know, like blaming yourself? I would imagine, you mean, you have 21 surgeries. If maybe I'm under counting, that maybe more, you can't use your arms. Like, how do you even work through like, what's wrong with me? You know, like maybe you left me because of how I am. And, and there's so many rippling effects. Did you have to go to counseling or did you, how, you know, did you just read the Bible and pray every day? You know, like, how did you get out of that place where you felt like God was so against you or, or that, you know, is anything good going to ever work out in your life? Yeah, that's a great question. I read the Bible and I prayed, but I definitely went to counseling. I had a great counselor who was a friend um, that is a counselor. And I just said, I want to see you because I know you and you know me. And so I would go and just pour out my heart because it was hard for me to not take it extremely personally because no. I feel like with a handicap, you always feel like, well, you're never going to get married anyway. I was listening to this memoir of someone who said, well, a lot of people just assumed if you have a disability, you know, you're just different. And I had people when I was younger say, you know, I would probably like you and want to go out with you. One guy said, but I never would date you because of your disability. So oh. I already had that in the back of my mind, like I was different and nobody was going to want me. And so when Dave left that, all of that just came back and it had been buried and I had forgotten, but those that screamed at me every day. Like, of course he left you. Of course you're not good enough, you know, this disability. And so it really just brought up these things that I think they were lies that I had told myself when I was young, that you're never going to get married. You're never going to find anybody because you're not enough. And I think a lot of people choose singleness. They're single because God hasn't found somebody for them. But there is a difference be between not being married, but feeling like you you deserve to be married or you could be married and feeling like I'm not good enough for anybody to marry me. And that was what I had really wondered all through my um, growing up years. So it felt like this huge scab that was ripped off a wound that I had carried for decades. Yeah. And so it was really hard. And then your daughters, when did they come around to, like, was it, did it take a while for them to, was it, your, I would imagine it was the way you responded that eventually affected them, but like, meaning that brought them back, because you really have, um, you've maintained your faith. I mean, you have a deep rooted faith in the Lord. I mean, again, I mentioned your writings and people can go and find your articles and, and your book. And in fact, I'm sure I want you to tell us a little bit about the book, but uh, that, that really tells your story, right? I mean, your upcoming yeah. book. Maybe yes, it tells everything that we're talking about in, in a lot of detail. But yeah, I would say that the girls first were very, very angry at God. And so they um, rebelled in different ways. 
And I really didn't know how to handle that. That was really hard for me. And I, I really regret not seeing their pain. I think I wanted them just to be obedient kids and to yeah. see my pain because I thought I've been through all that. You kids need to just be nice to me sort of thing. And that was not happening. And I remember thinking, you know, this was the hardest part really of having Dave leave was single parenting kids who were angry. <laughs> and so that made it doubly hard. But the other thing that I regret, though, is that I really couldn't see all the pain that they were dealing with. I saw them as almost my little billboards, which is embarrassing to say, but I thought people are going to see what kind of a parent I am by how my kids respond. And I so I was that. trying to respond in a godly way, but they were pretty angry. And I was embarrassed that they were so angry. Yeah. How did you, like, so, I mean, how do you get to the place where you understand, I mean, it sounds so logical now, but when you're walking in it, was it like with the book of Job, and I know your book is sort of talks about Job, right? From what I, I haven't read, it hasn't come out yet, but, but in general is Job had sort of, there's a lot of conversation in the book of Job. And then all of a sudden, boom, one chapter, God shows up and like, there's sort of a, a big climactic turnaround, you know, I guess, so yeah. to speak. Did that happen to you or was it more slow and steady, you know? Paves the way. Uh, I would think, say for me, it was more slow and steady and probably for the girls too. Really what changed me is the most basic thing. It was reading the Bible and praying. Like I got up an hour before my kids did. I was homeschooling them for the first few years, which I know it feels insane that I actually did it. But most people are homeschooling their children now, so they understand you know, they were there all the time. And so I had to get up early or I would not have any time without them. And that became my life in a way that it had never been before. I'd always liked reading the Bible. I'd always enjoyed um, that time with God. But there were lots of days when I would skip it and just think, oh, it's busy. I'm busy. And this was not, I have to read the Bible because that way God will be happy with me or I could check it off the box, which honestly was some of my devotional life before that. It was, this is the only way I'm going to make it through the day. Like, honestly, God, you need to give me wisdom. I mean, I'd bring him questions like, what do I do about this with the girls and show me what to do. And I would be reading through the Bible and my Bible reading plan and just saying, you got to speak to me through these words. These are the words I'm reading today. You talk to me. And Lena, it you know, that was not what you did. You just went through. I read your read your because a lot of people struggle. I think with that. They, I think Christians we recognize the value of Bible reading, but we don't. A lot of Christians, I don't think we know where to start. And right. I, I think sometimes it's the practical nuggets that can be very helpful. So you just went through like a read your Bible through a year sort of thing. Yes, it was Bible reading plan, and just so I didn't have to decide where to read because that's. 90% of the problem is you open the Bible and you're like, where do I start? What should I read? And it doesn't really matter. God can speak through it all. But I feel like a systematic way to read through the Bible is such a great thing. And it, and I would encourage people, like, don't feel like if I get behind, forget it. Like, just pick up for the next day. If you miss a week, just keep going. God will meet Did you, you journal? knowing it is everything. Did you journal in that time? Or, yes, or, I yeah. journaled tremendously, which is really what I based a lot of the stuff in my book. I journaled all the way through. I started journaling at 16. My journals at 16 were pretty shallow, but I started more after Dave left journaling what I was learning in the Bible because the Bible became alive. And so every day there was something God was showing me and I couldn't wait to write it down. And it be it became this completely different relationship with God, which has continued to today where I can't wait to read the Bible in the morning, which I'm sure sounds a little hokey and weird, but I really, I really can't wait. And that's not, I completely understand. And so what do you do? I'm curious, this is just a practical thing, because the older I get, the more I, you know, what do you do with the old journals? Do you save them all in a box in the basement? Yes, or I do. Yeah. Yeah, I save them all. Are you, do you tend to read them someday? I've got so many journals over the years and I've kind of dropped off here and there. But by and large, I, I don't think I've ever gone back to look at them. But it sounds like you've made a lot of them. You yes. wrote a book. I, I have made a practice. A friend of mine used to do that. Like every month she would pull out an old journal and just read it. 
And you can learn a lot about yourself and what God has taught you and things. I forget what God has even taught me. And I might read Ephesians five times and each time there's something different God shows me. And so when I read old journals, I see that, but I see where I've come. And um, yeah, so I would encourage you, Lena, just to pick up an old journal and just say, okay, let me just read this for an hour. Yeah. What um, motivated you or prompted you to, to get on eHarmony? Well, my oldest daughter, after I was divorced for a while, she said, let's go have coffee one day. And we went to this coffee shop and she said, you need to get out there. And I was like, I don't want to get out there. I don't know how to get out there. And then she said, no, you just need to join an online dating site. And I first just thought, no, I'm going to meet some real creep. But she insisted that it was very different and I would be able to discern if somebody was weird or a jerk and it was it was like a job, Lena, to have to be on an online dating site and like yeah. screen through lots of people. But it was funny because I was getting on eHarmony to log off when I met my husband because there was a mess. There was the way eHarmony works is they have all these slots and they tell you what people you've matched with, what they're doing now. Yeah. And um, I had matched with my husband I maybe months, years before and didn't know because you get matched with people that you never contact or anything, but it said that he had uploaded all these new pictures. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like it kept saying he was uploading new pictures. So I thought he, to myself, I thought this guy is a narcissist. (laughs) So I said, let me see what all these pictures are. So I, I clicked on his profile and looked at the pictures and he was not a narcissist at all. The first question on eHarmony is, what are you most passionate about? And Joel said, I'm passionate about Jesus Christ because there's nothing else to be passionate about. So I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, wow. Um, And it happened that he was just trying to upload these pictures and he's an engineer and they weren't putting them in the right order, which is why he was having all that trouble with it. But (laughs) we, he saw that I had clicked on his profile. So he clicked on mine and sent me a message. And then we started corresponding And it was really quickly that I realized this guy was completely different than anybody else I'd ever met. He is a widower. His late wife died of cancer. He loves the Lord. And he lived in Knoxville, but decided he could work remotely. So moved to Raleigh for me. Wow. And yeah, it was kind of wild, like uh, very unexpected. I had been on eHarmony not two years, but a long time and just was getting discouraged. And yeah, so it's kind of wild. Like right it's all done. Well, God has yeah, done. that's great. That, I mean, God can use any tool. And I know this is, it's, your daughter is right. It is the way that people meet now, but that's, that's awesome. You're happily married. Sounds like, and your daughters are walking in faith. Yes, both my daughters are. And my older one went to Senegal in um, Africa for a year to do missions after she graduated. She went to UNC Chapel Hill. And then the other one went to Wheaton a Christian College. And they both, yeah, they're both serving God, which is great. But that is, I want to be quick to say, that's not me. And that's not owed to us. Because I, I remember some people say, well, if you raise your kids right, you know, they're just going to walk with God. And I feel like I know lots of people that were so faithful and their kids don't walk with God right now. So especially after trauma, a lot of people I know who've gone through divorce or, you know, widows, it's just hard for kids. And I would just say, keep praying because it was a huge gift that they are, but not, not something I feel like I was owed. What do you worry about for the future? Do you, are you a worrier or? I am not much of a worrier, but I would say I do worry. Um, I know that quadriplegia could be around the corner for me. Like I'm having a hard time Mm -hmm. feeding myself. Like I can't make my own coffee. I can't carry things. And just what is that life going to look like? Especially for my husband, I think just, Mm -hmm. you know, what all is he going to have to do? Because he does everything for me. You know, he sets up everything. You know, he sets stuff up for me to talk to you. He gets my coffee. He gets my water. He gets my food. Like I cook. But he's the one that is actually doing the physical of most of it. And then I kind of direct him. And I have people that come in to our home and help me do things. But, you know, I do worry for him of what that's going to be like. What a providence of God to give you a husband who is a servant and who it's just crazy, you know? Yeah. The fastest yeah. of your life. What is it? If you had to sum, like, 
one biggest lesson of suffering for you over the decades of going through all of these things that we were just ran through quickly, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned? Um, I would say the one thing I've been thinking about recently, well, it's not one, it's three, but it's, there's three prepositions that have really summed up who God is and have really changed my view of God and suffering. And that is God for us, God with us, God in us, and just realizing like God is for me. So there's a purpose to all of this pain because if he wasn't for me and he is sovereign, then it wouldn't be here. Like it absolutely would not be here if God was not going to use it for something. Not that I know what it is and not that I'll know till heaven, but knowing that God is for me is huge. And then with me, like, even though there may be a purpose I'll see in heaven that I won't see until heaven, I know that God is with me in the fire. And that, that's why my book is Walking Through Fire, because God is with us in the fire, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm. But also God is in us. So because of that, we know we have heaven because the Holy Spirit is this deposit guaranteeing that. But God goes with us everywhere. He gives us wisdom. He does all those things because the Holy Spirit is in us. And so I think remembering all of those three things has helped me in suffering have a different perspective, I think, than I would have without them. Mm -hmm. What do you tell the person who might be listening, going through suffering right now, who doesn't feel God's presence in their life? What's the most practical thing they can do or, or to feel a, a, this practical awareness of God? I think we all sort of know intellectually that God is there, but there are moments in life when I guess you want to feel held by God to go back to those words. Well, how, do, how does a person tune into the presence of God in your experience? Um, I think if you feel really distant from God, which I have at different times, I find reading the Psalms, putting your name into them, reading them out loud. Because mm -hmm. you see that David and a lot of the Psalmists feel the same way. Like, where are you, God? I don't feel you here. Why are you letting this happen? And just personalizing them. These are the very words God put in the Bible for you to say back. And I think there's something really healing in doing that. I have a friend with ALS and we did that as a small group with her, just took scripture and just cried out to God on her behalf because this is hard. It's horrible. And mm -hmm. so just really acknowledging that and going to God but not going away. Cause I think the worst thing we can do is turn away or even lean away. Cause I don't know if I've ever mm. turned away from God, but I've definitely leaned away where I don't want to read the Bible and I don't mm. want to talk to him. Cause I feel like you've hurt me. Why do I want to talk to you? But really just sort of like in any relationship, when you ignore someone, it just makes the chasm deeper and wider and longer. And so just going towards God and just saying the words out of the Psalms, you can find some pretty hard things to say that I can pretty much guarantee will mirror any sentiments you feel. You can find them in the Bible, Lamentations, Job, Psalms, and just start saying them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're inspiring, Anitha. I'm not going to lie. You've been through a lot and you do remind me of Johnny Erickson Tata in some ways. And, uh, and she is one of my heroes. So I, I, I really uh, appreciate the time uh, that you're giving us and your honesty. And honestly, I can't, I, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Your writings minister to me so well and um, just are a reminder of how God uses our disappointments uh, to draw us to him. And that's what I found to be true in my life, I think. Uh, uh, I don't know about your dating advice. I'll have to think about that for <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of it, no, no, it's good. It's good. In fact, uh, my assistant Irina is listening, and she, um, uh, th this will speak to her. If maybe she's praying for a sign from God, whether she should stick out the internet dating sites or not. So this is good. This is good stuff. But really, I, yeah. I still appreciate your time here. I uh, tell us uh, the name of the book again and when it comes out. Yes, it's uh, Walking Through Fire, and it comes out in January. So you can um, pre-order it on um, Amazon now, even. And yeah. um, if you subscribe you to my a, blog, I will I have you have a great resource, right? I saw that. And, and I think uh, I was going to give people a, a shout out to how they can reach you. But tell us uh, about your website and that practical PDF uh, that you have for us. For, oh, for yeah, I have a PDF of um, 10 surprising things to help a suffering friend, because I think a lot of us don't know what to do when our friends are suffering. 
I honestly don't know even now. You'd think I would, Lena, but I <laughs> was looking at it today because I was writing a, a card for someone who um, died, for a relative who died. And I was like, what do I say? And I wrote some of those things in that book. And so I look them up to think about what do I say and how do I reach out to people? Because I don't remember oftentimes. So it helps me. It's just a compilation of things that people have shown me, taught me, as well as things that I've experienced. I, I subscribed and I got it and I'm, I like it and I'm, I've printed it out and I'm going to keep it in my Bible. Tell us the website again. Um, it's just Vanitha.com, actually. So it's V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A.com. Yes. That's and awesome. I, I, love it. I should do that with, with my name. Yeah. I can't say that. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's great. Hey, Thank you again for being on. Any last thoughts or anything that you feel like just compelled to say that I haven't asked? Or um... No, well, I th- say the last thing I would just say is don't give up on reading the Bible and praying. I think people think we need to do really amazing, like go to a conference or read something special. And I mean, that's the only way I've ever grown. And that's the only way I know anybody has ever grown is just mm-hmm. read the Bible and pray. So. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I grew up going to a Christian camp that just plays such a big part in my own Christian life. And we used to joke, we had a, we had a camp director that would, you know, we used to be nervous as we worked at camp later and became counselors. And he really, that that's all I remember from the time, I mean, all the things I remember, but his advice sticks and exactly, it's exactly what you just said, read your, we used to joke about it. Like, Hey, somebody comes and asks you a question about anything. And you're like, just read your Bible and pray every day. But I have found that to be the truth. And I've, I've witnessed people who I look up to in the faith. And I would agree that that is their secret. If there is such a thing, And so uh, it is amazing to me that we um, do everything in our life, but make time for that, which can actually change uh, the way that we live and suffer. And so a great reminder. And again, guys, check out her website, venitha.com. Guys, uh, also, we're going to, I know her book hasn't come out yet, but when it comes out, I'm going to give out a couple of copies of the book. And so we'll, I'll kind of remind you of that back in, in, for those of you who are listening right now, I'm going to remind you in January, but uh, we'll go ahead and and send two copies of the book. Why don't you do that? Why don't you email me if you're listening and you want a copy of Venitha's book, uh, email me at lena at livingwithpower.org. Remember guys that we're doing a series called Dear Lena, where you ask me questions about life and faith and everything in between. And so send me your questions at dearlena at livingwithpower.org. And next week, we'll be back to that. In the meantime, um, join me on Thursday night at 7 p.m. where I teach live on the Facebook community group. Uh, Again, go to our website, livingwithpower.org. Top of the page, you'll see a blue box that says join our community. Click on it and come meet me in person. Hey, I love you guys as usual. Have a great day. Don't forget to keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the hope of the world. 